You guys can join me in Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 23. Mark says, I get a hard passage. This is like the easiest Jesus-centered alley-oop in Deuteronomy, and he's asking for relief. Mark has worked so diligently over the last few months, in a lot of ways, but Mark on a regular basis, is the one we hear from in the Word. And um, the way he's put in work and sought um, God and the leading of the Spirit to, to teach us through Deuteronomy has really served our church well. I'm really thankful for that. Um, hopefully you're in Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 23. As I was thinking about this passage, I was studying and preparing for this passage, it kind of hit me that the name of our church is Christ's Covenant Church. Have you ever thought about the name of our church and what Christ's Covenant Church means? I don't know about you. I've gone to a few different churches in my life. You know, something, something Bible Church or something, something Baptist Church or whatever. And it's usually just some sort of outward designation about the values of the church. And so, what do you think probably Christ's Covenant Church communicates? For those of us who are familiar with church shopping, you might know that like covenant church, anything covenant church, that's probably, you got a you got a good chance of having a church that's reformed when you're coming into a covenant church of something. Um, covenant is a word that people who highly view the sovereignty of God or see Christ as the fulfillment fulfillment of all of God's promises, they'll usually throw that somewhere in the church name to to let people know that about that. But what is it? What does it really mean to be Christ's covenant church? Right. So let's break down. Those three words, right? So we'll start with covenant, right? Covenant is a promise, a, a, um, like a contract, uh, an agreement that is of such strong degree that it's like you break that agreement and the person who breaks the agreement dies. Like it's, it's very strong in nature of a, this agreement. So the, when we say the words covenant in the Bible, we're usually either talking about the old covenant or the new covenant, uh, the Old Covenant being the law, which we're in in the book of Deuteronomy, that's the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant being the gospel, the work that Jesus accomplished. So we are Christ's covenant, we're supposed to be Christ's covenant church, so we're talking about the New Covenant that, through Jesus, uh, and a church is a gathering of people in, in fellowship, united in fellowship and worship and mission um, on, a, on a regular basis. And that's what we are, we're a community of people regularly meeting together to worship God together, to share relationship with one another for the mission of God. So we're supposed to be Christ's covenant church. What we do is supposed to be defined by the covenant of Christ, by the new covenant. And so what we see in the book of Deuteronomy is that Moses is writing and expounding on the law of God to say, how, how should your lives look according to the old covenant? And as we read that, and as we study that this morning, I, I hope that the Lord would lead us to, to ask the question, how should our lives be shaped by the new covenant? How should we be a, a church shaped by the new covenant of Christ, Christ's covenant church? How should our church family and our families be shaped by the new covenant in Christ? So, yeah, we're in Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 23. I'll read and then I'll give some context to the passage. So, it says this. If a man has two wives, the one loved and the other unloved, and both the loved and the unloved have borne him, ch uh, him children, and if the firstborn son belongs to the unloved, 
Then on the day when he assigns his possessions as an inheritance to his sons, he may not treat the son of the loved as the firstborn in preference of the son of the unloved, who is the firstborn. But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the first fruits of his strength. The right of the firstborn is his. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, will not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders of the city at the gate of the place where he lives. And they shall say to the elders of the city, this is our son. This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. And all Israel shall hear and fear. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man, after going into the promised land, Moses is giving a speech to the Israelites, retelling them the law for the second time. And in this section of Deuteronomy, this specific section of Deuteronomy, he's going through kind of like the Ten Commandments, but he's expounding on them, saying, okay, this is what it means to honor your father and mother. This is what it means to not commit adultery. And those are the the two kind of commandments that we see him expounding on in today's passage. So, that's where we're at in Deuteronomy 21, 15 through 23. And my hope for the passage is, again, that we as a church, would learn what it means to, to live as a, a, fam- a church family and how each of our own families should be shaped by the new covenant of Christ. And the three headings that we're going to have today for those, those of you who are note takers would be the, the, um, how we live as covenant families, how we deal with covenant discipline, and how we live as people cursed by sin under the covenant. So, Uh, The first point we have is how we live as covenant families. So that's in this first section, 15 through 17. Uh, Here we see the topic of polygamy brought up, which is an uncomfortable topic for us, right? Because none of us are practicing polygamists. No no one has, no man in this room has multiple wives because that's wrong, right? And it's odd for us to see in the scripture God giving parameters to how to have a polygamous relationship. That does not seem like it lines up with God's heart for marriage. And that's because it doesn't. God is not supporting polygamy by writing about it in the law here. Uh, Think of it like how God teaches on divorce in the law, right? What does Jesus say about God's example uh, of how, how God feels about divorce when he teaches about it in the law? He says, he write, God, God gave instructions for divorce because of your hardness of heart. The whole point of the law that we see in reading the New, the new Covenant, and when we see in reading the New Testament, we see that the whole point of the law is to reveal our own sinful tendencies. So this is to see, show how sinful tendencies have skewed the picture of marriage and polygamy and to, to give guidelines on how to, to, to make sure that People aren't put to shame and are unfairly treated. And that's kind of what he's going through here. But it's clear from the scriptures that a one man and one woman relationship is God's picture for marriage, right? And that marriage and family as a whole, 
Marriage and family as a whole are meant to show a picture of who God is. That's clear from the beginning. Because if you look at Genesis 1, right, God creates everything, and the very last thing he creates is man and woman. And he calls everything else very good, he calls everything else good, but he calls man and woman very good, right? And then the entire second chapter of Genesis is how he shows this relationship of man and woman coming together in marriage, that Adam's looking for a helper, he can't find a helper, so God takes the rib out of Adam and presents Eve to him, and the two, one man, one woman, shall become one flesh. It's clear God's picture for marriage is the joining of one man and one woman, right? And that's upheld in how God talks about uh, marriage and how he even talks about polygamy. What does he say in Deuteronomy 17, 17, when he talks about the example of the king? The king Shouldn't have multiple wives. What does he say when he talks about the example for men in the church? An elder, a pastor, should be a one-woman man. Should only have one wife. The whole point, the whole picture that's displayed in marriage that we see in Ephesians 5 is of a husband loving his wife as Christ loved the church and Christ and, and uh, the, the wife submitting to her husband as we, the church, submit to Christ. That picture is explicitly... God's picture. And so polygamy is the skewed picture of this. It's not an accurate representation of, of how we should see family, how we should see marriage, uh, according to how God defined it. And so God is trying to protect his people. They're supposed to be his, the, the whole writing of the law and the whole purpose of them going into this new land is for them to be set up in as an example of who God is. And if there's these, these marriages twisted by polygamy, he's trying to, to box those in to make sure that, that they are representing him rightly to the rest of the world. So, there's this whole case of the right of the firstborn in the case of polygamy. So that's another thing that we don't really practice all that much either, where the firstborn gets a double inheritance to the rest. All you firstborn guys in the crowd are kind of like, yeah, yes. But no, that's, that's not something we regularly practice and it seems almost a little unfair. Like, why should just because he was born first, he get double the inheritance, right? Um, but the, the whole purpose of this, that, that we see that the reason that the firstborn is given this double portion is that he is, um, that he is the first fruits of the father's strength. He's the representative of the father he is the one who, as when the father is gone, he will represent the family. And so this double portion shouldn't just be as this, like, hey, he gets to double indulge. It's now that whole family that that father used to take care of, now the whole, the whole responsibility of taking care of that family is put on the shoulders of that firstborn son. And through him, through his inheritance and through his care and his representation of his family, he's the one who's supposed to be given that honor of taking care of the rest of the family. And so we see also in this relationship too that the firstborn and the wives here who are, who are under this, this father, this father's got a heart issue, right? He's, he's not doing things in the, the order of how the law is, seen, is, is supposed to be doing it. He's wanting to give a, a second-born son the inheritance because he loves that his mom more than he loves the firstborn's mom's son. Or, wait, no. This is, this, it's so confusing. I hope you know what I'm saying, right? <laughs> this is why we shouldn't have polygamy. It's too complicated. <laughs> it's just not, he's not acting fairly. 
He's not acting the way that, the, he's not representing God and being fair. He's getting deceived by his own heart. But God, in his care for the family, is trying to protect those weaker parties. This wife who's being unloved, who's not being cared for. This firstborn son who's being treated unjustly because of his father's deceived heart. God's really caring for people who aren't well, who don't have a voice. People who might be being taken advantage of. So that Israel as a nation and the way they do their marriages and the way they have their families would represent him rightly to the rest of the world. We also see these examples of how we should represent God in our marriages and our families, right? So, first of all, in our marriages, it's clear that God sets up um, a monogamous marriage. So any of you considering polygamy, no, I don't want you, I'd say don't, we're not going to do that. Uh, we're not moving forward with polygamous relationships. But more, more realistically in our marriages that your, a, a husband's love for his wife and a wife's love for her husband should not be defined based on how they feel about them, right? We see here that this father's heart is misled by how he feels for, about his wife. That there's not, something not right in his relationship with them, so he's not going to treat them according to how they should be treated. He's not going to treat them fairly and kindly. He's going to treat his one that he favors more with, with greater kindness. And our hearts can do the same thing in our own marriages, right? Where you treat your wife or your husband with greater fairness or, or represent Christ to them much better when they are making you happy. But when they're not making you happy or not making you feel loved, you're more sinful towards them, right? But our love for our spouses shouldn't be based on our deceitful hearts towards them. Our love for our spouses are based on the fact that our marriages are supposed to be a picture of Christ and his church. That, being his covenant people, being a representative of Christ to the world, means we love our spouses not based on how we feel towards them at that moment, but on how Christ has loved us. And being an example of that to the world. And then we have this whole topic of the firstborn, right? So God, when we're talking about the firstborn, Christ comes to mind. That he is the firstborn of creation and the firstborn from the dead. Now, God is not in a polygamous relationship. So he has no problem executing his, his inheritance fairly. But we do see that this whole picture of the right of the firstborn really is a picture of Christ, right? That he is preeminent in all things. He's of first importance. He is the exact imprint of his father's nature. He is the one who represents the father. He is the worthy son of all the inheritance. And because of his glory, being the firstborn of creation, being firstborn from the dead, God has given to him all things. But as the firstborn in the family, we as the secondborn, as the adopted children in the family of God, through Christ, we have received a fair and unlimited inheritance through our Father. That He has has lavished on us all of the inheritance that was meant for Himself. So in our families, we we don't put the significance on our own firstborn. And we don't put the significance of inheritance, of the things that we pass on to the next generation, the most significant thing we're passing on to them is in our houses or our cars or our stuff or our money. Those are not the, the, the significant inheritance that we're passing on to our children. The significant inheritance that we're passing on to our children is the inheritance which we've received through Christ. We want to pass that on of first importance to our children. And we want to do it in a way that points 
to the glory of that firstborn. So we as new covenant people want to represent Christ uh, as a husband and God as a father uh, in the way we, in, in, in how we view the new covenant in our, in our lives. So uh, the second point we've got is covenant discipline. So we talked about how to live as covenant families, uh, how to execute covenant discipline. So we've got the second se- section here that talks about the rebellious son and how the father and the mother deal with him. So just to paint, this, this, this is a harsh scene, and it's meant to be a harsh scene, but I think maybe giving a little bit more, looking at it more closely will give us a better understanding of, of what's actually going on here. So first of all, I think the age of the, the child is important. Uh, where we see in verse 20, it says that, that when they present the son, they're saying, he will not obey our voice, he is a glutton and a drunkard. So this is, it's kind of implied here that this is an adult child, right, that's been consistently spurning the, 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 the direction of his parents. Um, and we can see that he's been spurning that direction because it says in verse 18 that he's, he will not obey, obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, though they discipline him. So it's been consistent, long-standing attempts to discipline this child and they're continuing to reject this, this discipline and not obeying their voice. Then there's the safeguard of accountability. There's multiple levels of accountability that are brought in this process, right? It's not just the father or it's not just the mother who is bringing the rebellious son before the elders, but it's the father and the mother that are bringing the, voice, the, the, the rebellion of the son before the elders. Then the elders of the city are the ones who are to look over the case and to see whether this son should be executed. And then it's the men of the town who are to pick up the stones and stone him. So there's multiple layers where even at the end, before that person is executed, each man who grabs a stone has got to feel confident enough that this man is as worthy of execution before casting that stone. And it's not that this was a, a common practice. It's not something that we see actually played out in Scripture. But it probably did happen. There's, I mean, most likely did happen in, in, uh, Israelite, in, in the, the Israelite community. And that's, that's a harsh thing to, to hear. It's, that's kind of the point, right? Is we, we look at the, at the end in verse 21, the last verse of that section in verse 21. It says, So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and all Israel shall hear and fear. Those are two phrases that are repeated over and over in, in the book of Deuteronomy. Um, the, they, the, there was supposed to be this feeling um, in, in this execution of getting rid of the evil through this execution of the evil one. That because they were evil, they deserved to die, and we need to get rid of evil so that we can be a holy community representing God. Right. So the whole purpose is so that they would get rid of evil to show the holiness of God in their community, that they're living according to the covenant. And, so the, and the harshness of it as well is so that all Israel would hear and fear. There is, if you feel uncomfortable looking at this, that's the way the law is supposed to make you feel sometimes, right? Where you say, well, I don't think if I was setting up the law, like a rebellious son is bad, but I don't think I would stone him to death. You know, I'd probably be a little bit more gracious towards him. Um, that discrepancy of how you feel and what the law says shows that you are not God. 
even our uncomfortability probably says that I'd assume most of us here at one point or another were rebellious towards our parents. And some of us to a pretty high degree. And some of us here have rebellious children so who, who are still not following the Lord. And so you might feel this, this inward feeling of, man, people I love or even myself, I really deserve this kind of punishment and it's horrifying. And that's what... That, that was the response they were supposed to have. All Israel was supposed to hear and fear as they see this child being executed for being rebellious to their parents. They were supposed to say, wow, God is holy and I am sinful and I, I better live according to this covenant because I, am, I know this sinful tendency is within me. Yet, so, so when, when we see this Purge the evil from your midst applied to us as the new covenant community. When we see the purge the evil from your midst, um, which, is, which, he uses, which Moses uses here, Paul uses that same purge the evil from your midst in 1 Corinthians applying to um, church discipline. And the purpose of church discipline in the passage where he uses the purge the evil one from your midst is not that that person would be executed that no longer is the, the, the purpose of getting rid of evil in, a, in God's covenant community for the purpose of executing punishment for something that was done wrong, but for restoration. It's that they would cast this evil person out from the community of church after going through the proper process of church discipline, which we've talked a lot about over the last few weeks. So that person would be asked to leave the covenant community so for the purpose of them being brought back. There's this picture of restoration that happens in the church. It's no longer punitive judgment of you did something wrong and you are going to pay for it, but now of restoration and repentance. You, you have sin in your heart and we are praying that God would transform your heart. Because in the new covenant, the Father's love is completely shown. Not only is He holy, but he is able to transform us to make us holy. I think about the picture of the prodigal son. Think about that. Where, the, where Jesus talks about the heart of the father. Where there's this rebellious son that runs away from home and squanders in his inheritance and then he comes back and what does, how does the father receive him? Does the father execute judgment on him? No, the father receives him with open arms and with a kiss and with a celebration. And the older son in that parable is upset because he says, I've been here this whole time. He doesn't deserve this. He's done all of these wrong things. And a lot of, and a lot of that's according to the law. This, this older brother is right. But the father is able to love his rebellious son in, in grace and mercy. And that's actually the representation of God's heart towards us. And that's because in Christ, even though we were the rebellious sons, We've been forgiven. God has executed his judgment towards us and Christ. That we no longer have to pay the price for our rebellion before God, but Jesus paid it when he died on the cross. So God's righteousness and holiness in the execution of his judgment was fully taken out on Christ. So now we can live as his accepted sons and daughters. No longer are we judged in wrath as an example of his holiness, but we were redeemed and transformed to be holy like him through the power of Christ. 
This is such a harsh example of execution so that all Israel would hear and fear. And it kind of brings us transitioning into this, this next section. I'm sorry, before I move on, I want to talk about how this, how, how we as parents of wayward children in the church should, should apply these principles of grace towards our children. There are probably some in the congregation here who have children who are not following the Lord, but would assume that they are. They would assume that they are a part of the covenant community, and you're not quite sure whether or not that is true, right? Um, If your child is professing faith in Christ, uh, I would encourage you not to discourage them and to say, well, no, I, you know, I'm not sure you are. Or I'm not, I don't think you are. D- d- not, to, not to speak certainly about where they are in reference to their relationship with Christ because you know, there's, there's all sorts of di- different levels of Christian maturity and relationship, and I don't think it's what our role to say you are saved or you are not saved. But to continue to encourage them, if they're professing that faith, to continue to seek the Lord uh, and to, to, to repent and to continue to grow in their relationship with God and pray that there would be actual heart change that would be demonstrated in their lives. Um, encourage them in their relationship with the Lord. And at the same time, though, you're not called to give false assurance either. It's not your responsibility as a parent to say, oh, just because of your profession of faith, you are right with God and to comfort them. Because if, you're, if your child is living in unrepentant sin... It is not your role as a parent to always just be accepting of their lifestyle. And that's something that we see is a very common narrative in our world today. Where if someone is, is living in outright blatant sin, that parents are supposed to just come behind them and say, I love you, I support you no matter what, I'm behind all of your decisions, I, I think what you're doing is great. And that's not love for our children. We as parents are called to discipline our children. To, for their restoration, we're called to train them and to teach them so that they would repent and so that they would be transformed. We are given God's ministry to our children of, of being agents of, of repentance. Of, 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 of God, God has given parents to, through the process of discipline, point our children to Christ. So each time our children are caught in sin, we have this divine opportunity to discipline our children and to point them to Christ. So, there's no need to give false assurance, but through discipline, point our children to Christ, um, address their sin blatantly, and show them their need for repentance. And when we punish and when we discipline our children, the purpose is not so that they would pay for the wrong bed. It's meant to be restorative and redemptive. It's to make them, to, make them to, to help them turn their hearts towards their need for heart change. It's, it's not meant just for their hurt. It's meant for their reconciliation and redemption. All right, let's move on. Let's move on to this final section of living as covenant people um, with who are sinful in condition. So, how to live in how to I'm sorry how to live in light of the covenant based on our sinful condition. 
So Moses here has just transitioned from a harsh picture of executing judgment on a rebellious child and, and stoning him so that all of Israel would hear and fear. And then he goes on to this example of cursed is a man who is hanged on uh, cursed is a man who is hanged on a tree. So right in this example that he says here at the, at the end of uh, Deuteronomy 21, anyone who has committed a crime that should that lead to execution, there would be a circumstance where they would be hung up on a tree as a display of that man has committed a sin that was cursed by God, that makes him cursed by God, and don't be like this person. He was hung up as an example. Can you imagine how gruesome that would be, right? Walking down the street and seeing someone who had been executed by God being hung up on a tree. How would you feel in your own heart? Let's say even in this example of this rebellious son, when you see this person hung up on a tree, what a gru- like gruesome and grotesque picture is that? That when we see this person hung up on a tree, we would, we would realize, wow, I'm sinful, and under God's law, I could be that person. I am not righteous enough. It would be, it would be something that would drive you to realize how inadequate you are of being holy in the sight of God. Like you are guilty. You are a lawbreaker just like that person. If you're rightly seeing your own heart's condition, you would look at that man who is executed hanging up on the tree and say, my own sinful heart is a lot like that guy's sinful heart. And you should be terrified of God's righteous judgment. This was a picture of God's righteousness and holiness and the wrath that is coming towards those who are his enemies. It was a gruesome and grotesque picture. That's why he was only allowed to be hung up for one day so that he wouldn't defile the land by showing this curse of God. Yet, in Christ, the picture changes, doesn't it? Galatians 3, 13-14 says this. says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So whereas that cursed man who was hung up and executed by God was this example of his holy righteous anger towards sinners, has deserved righteous anger towards sinner. When we look up at the man hang, hung on that tree, we see God's righteous anger taken away. Totally absorbed in Christ. He was righteous. He was the perfect son. The perfect firstborn son. The exact imprint of his nature. We were the rebellious sons. He was the perfect son. Yet the cursed man, the one who's executed, is the one who's perfect hanging on that tree in our place. That's a grotesque picture too, but it's a grotesque picture that, that we should feel something much different inside when looking at it. No longer do we look at him and say, wow, I am going to suffer under God's righteous wrath. We say God has been fully righteous and fully just, and fully holy, and fully perfect, and he has absorbed all of his righteous anger that was meant for me on that man. I was cursed, now he's, he received that curse for me. That curse is gone. I don't bear that anymore. And I think, man, I, got, I got really got hit with this this week on how I view myself right now 
in light of the curse. Like I, someone asked me this question this last week. My wife actually asked me this question. She said, "What two ways, what two words would you use to um, for how God would describe you? What what two words do you think God would describe you with?" And immediately, the two first words that came to my mind were negative about my sin. And it was very easy for me to come up with those. And in a lot of ways, my mindset of how God views me is through the lens of the old covenant that I think that God is angry at me because of my sinful tendencies, that I feel guilty and convicted, and I I feel really that when God looks at me, He is ashamed of my sin. But the reality of the new covenant is that I no longer look up at the man who was cursed hanging on that tree and see my own sin. I see my own sin on him. I see it fully absorbed. I, and now the Father, the, the, the light that was once the piercing blindingness of his holiness destroying me is now the warmth of his love and his mercy shown in Christ. Like God has loved me through the cross through Him absorbing the curse for me. And when God looks at me now, He loves me like His Son. Like His perfect Son. Because Christ has absorbed all of that curse for me. And gained me that inheritance. So, to conclude an application here, a few few points of reminder of application for us. How do we live as Christ's covenant church? How do we live by people, in light of this passage, how do we live as people of the covenant, of the new covenant? Our marriages should display faithful, singular love um, because of who Christ is, not because of who our spouse is. That we should show the picture of Christ to the world by how we love our spouse. That we should seek to pass on an inheritance to our children. And this is not only for us who are parents, but right, what is our mission as a church? That we're trying to bring the gospel to the generations and the nations, right? So we are passing the gospel on to the next generation. Because there have been faithful men who have passed down the gospel to us. And that the gospel is preached here every Sunday. And we enjoy our joy and our worship of God based on what Christ has done because the gospel has been passed down to us. And so now we as the firstborn son that Christ would receive glory in His church in every generation, forever and ever. Amen. Our discipline as a church and in our families should be one of reconciliation and restoration. When we see the sin in other people's lives, it should not be, our response should not be one of de- them desire, of desiring wrath for that person, right? Because we were, sin- we were sinners, and yet Christ redeemed us. So when we see our brother, our sister, our sons, or our daughters wayward or caught in sin, we should discipline. We should do that as a church. We should discipline as a church. We should discipline in our families. Discipline is absolutely necessary to point people to their needs for Christ, but we want to point people to their need for Christ. We want to point them to the one who has fully absorbed that wrath for them and who can transform their lives. We want to see redemption and reconciliation, not destruction. We would hope that their flesh would be destroyed so that they could come back and experience the fellowship with, fellowship with God and fellowship with His people So we should be diligent in disciplining for restoration. 
And if we are going to truly be defined as Christ's covenant church, we have to regularly set our gaze on the man who hung on the cross and observe the curse for us. We have to remember who we are in light of what Christ has done. We are no longer cursed, but Christ has absorbed that curse for us. Let me pray. Father, I simply ask that from the teaching of your word this morning that we would understand how to live as people shaped by your new covenant. Um, I pray that you would make these words clear, that you would show us that we are no longer under the curse of, of sin. We are in Christ. Um, but that you've freed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. Uh, Would we look at Jesus and that transform every aspect of our lives? I pray these things in your name. Amen.